Amen. You can grab a seat. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. And if you brought a copy of the scriptures, we're going to be in the book of Luke, chapter 19. So feel free to turn or tap your way to the Gospel of Luke as we continue in our somewhat unorthodox Advent series of invasion. The idea with this series, as we continue it today, is to take that that thought of the alienness, the oddness of what really happened with the word Emmanuel, God with us, and turn that thought as like a screw, just turn it so that it sinks deeper into our brains. As we go through and sing these hymns, these Christmas songs, they're they're songs that include Latin. I know everybody else in the room knows what in excelsis Deo means, except for me. You all are good Latin scholars, and we're like conjugating as we went. But uh, I, I don't know. what I have to Google what that means. And yet we sing it each year. We sing these kinds of hymns that hold this sort of older language. And why? It's because for centuries, for millennia, The church has celebrated, but it's not just the celebration. The church has taken time in the calendar to put special emphasis on understanding, applying, enjoying, just pondering, thinking about Emmanuel, God with us. And as you think through it, and as you give your brain to it, maybe as an adult, part of the problem, this is a a well, I think an excellent critique of a lot of people who grow up and cast off their Christianity that maybe they grew up with, is that as an adult, they've never gone back and thought through their Christianity at an adult level. It's like they're still intending nursery rhyme Christianity to be the, the thing that they will need to change them at a deep level. But as you go through and you think about it as an adult, God with us, you should have certain questions. My hope as we go through this week by week is to ask some of those questions together and try to think through them. Because it really is odd that God would come to be with us. I thought about the first week about how he is taking on The nature of humanity, what does that mean? How does that work? And then last week we just thought about suffering. How Jesus came to be with us in our suffering and and we understand that he came into a place where he had to suffer. He was born poor. He was born into a, a life and a family and a subjugated people where he was going to struggle. He had suffering. We understand the end of the story where he goes to a cross and he's killed. So yes, he endures suffering. But if God has come to be with us, is his grand solution produced the suffering that I'm currently enduring? Because if so, I have to ask if what he meant to do worked. And if he's really good. We thought about that last week and we're going to have a whole series that we're going to dedicate to that concept of suffering. And How does God, a good God, allow suffering? It's going to take time. We're going to take our time on it in the new year. I invite you to come back and think with us about that. But this week I want to ask another question that maybe uh, you would have, again, if you thought about this at more of an adult level, which is, 
If we are saying that the God that the Bible describes, the holy God, the one that was totally without sin and cannot abide sin, that that God has come to be with us and he's going to be in our presence. If you really think about that, there there should be this moment of, uh (laughs) uh-oh. If he's totally holy and he's coming to be with me, Here's what I'm I'm thinking you should feel at some point. Go back in your brain to being like a teenager, early teenager. And you're in your room. Maybe you didn't have a room to yourself, but you had a place as your spot. And you got in your little spot, and you had that thing that you're not supposed to have. You got that thing you're not supposed to see, the the device you're not supposed to watch, the the activity, probably not a weird activity you're doing, but there's a thing, there's some illicit, illegal in the household thing, and you got it. And you're by yourself, and so you're going to go and enjoy it. And you can take yourself back to the thrill of that. It's sort of a twin thrill, right? There's a fear there, but there's also this excitement. And right in the middle of it, Mom walks in with the laundry, and you're caught. Have you ever experienced that? You're driving down the road, you're going fast, but you didn't really think about it, and then you pass a police officer, is he going to pull me over or not? And you start to get that, and then the lights come on, and he comes and gets you. Have you felt that? Just me? Yeah? (laughs) That moment of shame. And you get pulled over, and if it's a slow road, all these people come by, and what do they do? (laughs) I do that. Do you ever go by somebody that's pulled over and not look at them? Come on. (laughs) Feels so good. And and why? Because they got caught, and I didn't, right? (laughs) That moment of, you're caught. Think about it. Some of you have had bigger moments than just like cops or mom. It's like, Capital C, cops. Some of us have been arrested. Some of us have been called into the principal's office of our boss and he's saying to us, can you explain this? And then you feel that shame when the spotlight comes on you. Do you know that feeling? Let me ask you, if I say God with us, is there ever a moment of being caught? I think there should be. We're saying that he's holy and we're saying that we aren't. Here's the thought. If your hand is dirty, you wash off your hand and then you have a clean hand, right? What if you have a mud pie? Your little kid makes a mud pie and they bring it to you and you're like, oh, you can't eat that. Let me clean it. You're going to wipe it off? When you wipe off the top layer of mud on a mud pie, what's underneath? Mud. Can you clean a mud pie? No. Here's the question that you should ask Scripture because Scripture answers it in a very powerful and very clear way. Do I have a clean hand? Am I basically a good person and I've just got some stuff on top that needs to be scrubbed off and then I'm good? Am I basically good and I just need to get primped? Or am I basically Not good. And the cleaning that somebody might do on the outside of me isn't going to go far enough 
Here's a question that, that Lewis asks well in one of his fiction books. Uh, C.S. Lewis, a writer, a guy that was a, a popular public thinker and Christian, and he write a lot of fiction. In one of his books, there's a moment where one of his characters meets an angel. It's a good angel. It's one of God's angels. But he meets an angel and he feels fear. Of course, we would all feel fear if we met an angel, one who's been in the presence of God. And they come to be with us or be in front of us. And the presence of God is there in front of you. And all of a sudden, you feel all this fear. Everybody in Scripture always feels all of this fear. But the, the Lewis guy, he goes further because he describes a different kind of fear and a deeper one. He says, this is the character talking about afterward. He's remembering what happened. He said, I felt sure that the creature was what what we call good. He felt sure, something in his bones, he knew that the thing that he's with, this angel, one of God's angels, is good. But I wasn't sure whether I liked goodness so much as I had supposed. That is a very terrible experience. As long as what you are afraid of is something evil, you may still hope that the good may come to your rescue. But suppose you struggle through, get to the good, and find that it also is dreadful. How if food itself turns out to be the very thing you can't eat, and home the very place you can't live, your very comforter, the person who makes you, uncomfortable. Do you see that? What if being human and being sinful means that when the holiness of God comes to be with us, it's not this grand moment of good things meeting their good creator. It's instead a moment of shame. That's the story we're going to think about today with Zacchaeus. He's this guy in scripture who is an, is an outsider socially, is an outsider morally, and yet when he meets Jesus, the shame that he has for who he is encounters Jesus. We get this lived-out experience of Emmanuel, and I want to understand it because I want to understand what we should be doing with our shame, what Emmanuel means for our brokenness. Luke 19, verses 1 through 4, the first part we're going to read, and then we're going to continue on a little bit. But it says in verse 1, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there's a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not see because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. What do we know about Zacchaeus? Well, there's a little nursery rhyme thing that we sing about. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. And I don't know why it goes Irish. I don't know of any other Irish ditties that we sang as children. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't, but that was a song that we sang. But it's important to the story because it's a plot point. Jesus is walking through Jericho, and there's a lot of people. There's a crowd of people. And I'm a very tall person, and there's not a lot of good that comes with that. There's honestly a lot of uh, difficulty that comes with that. You can't fly anywhere. I'd give up about six inches easy if that was a process. But the one thing you do get with being tall is that you can see over crowds. I always feel embarrassed standing on the front row here at Hope Church. It's like I could be in the back and still see fine. And the people behind me can't see, and I'm glad we've got three screens. And you know, But Zacchaeus, plot point, we little man cannot see over the crowd to see to Jesus, and he's not let through the crowd. Why? 
He can't go stand with his buddies and watch Jesus. Why? Well, it's not his weeness. It's verse 7. They all grumble when they see Jesus loving this Zacchaeus guy because he's gone to be against a man who is a sinner. Now, the Bible says we're all sinners, but what is it about Zacchaeus that God is bringing out in Luke? He's bringing out not just his tax collector, as though that job was not just a bad enough job, but to be Jewish meant that you were considered God's people. Think about this. You've got to get there mentally. You've got to take a couple steps to do it because there's all kinds of disconnects that we have as modern Americans that they didn't have back then that we have to kind of get to to understand the story. They, as Jewish individuals, were considered God's people. That was their corporate identity. That was their story. And to be God's people meant not only that they were um, Abraham, and then Isaac, then Jacob, then the Twelve, and then the tribes, and then now you have all these people that have an ethnic, genetic connection. They're also people that have a national, sovereign connection. They consider themselves a country. So, this country of Israel, given God's grace and His name and the covenants and all the prophets in the New Testament, is subjected to the rule of Rome. A different country with a whole different bag of ethnicities and a whole different bag of deities. Do you, can you start to understand what it would be like then to be ruled by another country? Not only does it mean your country is not the best, but to be Jewish, it was your country, it was not just your country, your country was also who you were as an individual. That you as an individual had failed. But it was even further than that because you say that God is your God and that Yahweh is God over all and that's God over all. His people are subjected to another kingdom and another people. Man, it means that you somehow failed God or worse, somehow that God has failed. Do you understand something of what that would feel like? No, but something, Right? And the tax collector was an individual in the Jewish people who worked for Rome. And they collected taxes for Rome. They weren't just tax collectors among the Jewish people. They were tax collectors for Rome. And part of what made them even more skeevy is that they could take as much as they wanted. With Rome's power, they could take more than they needed and then just give Rome their due and keep the rest. Now, how do you think those people would be seen Amongst the Jews. They're not just Roman centurions. They are actual ethnic Jewish people. Who have turned coat. On their people. To go and serve somebody else. Man I think Zacchaeus would be the kind of guy. That it would be easy to hate. He's kind of put himself out there that way. He would be easy. To hate. And the people hated him. They saw him as. And he was. A sinner just was and yet look at what happens when love enters this story verse 5 when Jesus came to the place he looked up and said to Zacchaeus Zacchaeus hurry come down I must stay at your house today (laughs) you gotta just see this because this is Emmanuel he sees Zacchaeus Ironically above Jesus, but he's up in a tree. Not an honorable thing for an adult man to be doing. 
I don't mean, go climb a tree if you think it's fun, but like you wouldn't do that when the governor is wandering through the city and you're like, I've got to see. And so you climb up into a tree and then you're hanging there. Kids do that. Adult men don't. And yet, that's where Jesus catches him and he says to him, Zacchaeus, what would the next thing that you would say be? Probably be easy to be judgmental, right? Be easy to make fun. I just tried to. I don't know how successful it was, but I tried to. Yeah. And yet instead, what Jesus does, he says, i got to go to your place, man. I'm coming to your house. And that culture, to be hosp- uh, the, the hospitality kind of culture that they had there, for Jesus to go and to eat at Zacchaeus' home, it meant that instead of anybody else in the crowd of people that were there to see Jesus, he wanted to eat with, he wanted to be with, he wanted to be identified with Zacchaeus. What does that mean? It means several different things. Let's think through it. I must stay at your home today. What it says about Jesus first is that Jesus was not somebody who looked to other people's reputation as something he could climb up on. Everybody says that. They go go to college if you want to, but it's not about what you know. It's about, it's all about who you know. And maybe that's true, maybe it's not. It's been true for people I know and at times for me too. It's not about what you know. It's about who you know. It's about the other reputations that you can put on your resume to say, look at me because you look at them. And how tempting would it be for somebody like Jesus who has to start a worldwide movement to save all the people of all the world to start somewhere different than... Because, I mean, if he really is God, he could have been born as the emperor's son and could have become the emperor. He could have made himself as grand as he chose to, but he becomes a carpenter's son. And then, in his ministry, he doesn't go and associate with the high priest or Herod or any of these other people. What does he do? He goes to who is lowest in that society. That's the point of the whole tax collector thing. They would be the most low in the society. It's not grammatical, whatever, but I'm saying, bottom rung. He doesn't need the reputations of other men to climb higher because he's trying to teach all of them that that whole rung thing is upside down. The whole climbing thing is broken. Jesus, in the love that he has, climbs down into the filth of hated men. And then he makes them clean. Here's what happens when shame meets Jesus. Verse 6, Zacchaeus, after hearing Jesus say, you come down, I'm going to your house today, says he hurried down and came down and he received, Zacchaeus received Jesus joyfully. And then, verse 7, all the people critique Jesus for going to be with the house of a sinner because they don't understand any of the gospel. And then verse 8, Zacchaeus stood. He receives Jesus, he receives him joyfully, Let's understand the order here. That's going to be very important in just a moment. But look at what happens immediately. This is a huge right turn. He receives Jesus joyfully, and then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, Jesus, he's calling Jesus Lord. How interesting. He's received him. He understands who Jesus is. He's calling him by his proper title, not rabbi, but Lord. The half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. What happens when he receives the Lord with joy? Repentance. It goes further than that, but let's not 
get past that without seeing it. What happens is repentance. You have to understand this because you have to understand the order of how this is all working out. Jesus receives Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, obviously interested in Jesus, trying to learn about him, wants to understand him, sees in him something that's there. There's something about this Jesus guy that he's coming to understand. And yet, when Jesus sees Zacchaeus, he receives Zacchaeus. And then, out of the joy of being received, and out of the joy of being loved like that by somebody, it's the highest guy in the world, meets the lowest guy in the world. And because of that condescension, Emmanuel, because of that condescension, the highest guy coming to meet and love the lowest guy in the world, he overflows with repentance. Everybody, pick up your gospel verse religion card. Pick it up! Pick it up! It's there! Pick it up! There's a card, this blue card that's about this big. It says Gospel vs. Religion. Pick it up and wave it so it makes a floppy noise. Ah, very good, very good. Do you see it? Read it. That card, that Gospel versus Religion card, is trying to help you see what is the crux of what the enemy has done to hide the Gospel in our culture. And he's been doing it for generations! He has tried to make it about climbing up to God's presence and God's honor rather than receiving God's presence and God's honor and then acting out of that love. That's what's happened to Zacchaeus. But it goes even further because the Zacchaeus guy doesn't just give back. He does it out of this love. 1 Corinthians 13.3 says, If I give away all that I have. So, nobody has matched Zacchaeus, I, I'm going to guess in this room. Nobody has matched Zacchaeus' generosity in giving up half that he has. But 1 Corinthians 3 says, What if I give up all that I have? I give up everything that I have, materially. And then I deliver up even my body to be burned. I give up everything that I have Physically, physiologically. But I have not love. What does God owe you? What'd you get? What'd you earn? You can see. Nothing. Understand this. If I give up everything I have, deliver my body over to be burned, doing twice what Zacchaeus does, but have not love earned nothing. As Zacchaeus receives Jesus' love, he is totally redefined. Imagine again what it would be to be Zacchaeus. He is somebody who is ostracized socially. He is somebody who has chosen a career, who brought his, brought himself out socially. He's brought himself out morally, because in the Jewish culture, to be out socially was to be out morally. They were all the same thing. And as this absolute loner, as this sinner, who the whole community called a sinner, we try to make that case all the time as a culture, that you just do what you think is best, and don't worry about what the culture says about what you're doing, because if you know that it's right, then it must be. But we all know the lie of that. You can't continue to admit that you're right and convince yourself that you're right when everybody says you're not. And here's Zacchaeus walking the streets, and they all say sinner. Sinner, 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 sinner. And yet, when he receives the love of Jesus, he has been totally redefined.
You imagine who you are as Zacchaeus. You're totally ostracized. And yet, one thing you do have is money. He's got power. He's the leader of the tax collectors. He's the ruler of the tax collectors. And he was very rich. The Bible says you're very rich, bro. You're very rich. (laughs) So if you're Zacchaeus, totally ostracized in these other ways, what do you think your self-worth, your self-value, your self-definition rests in? It's probably those monies, baby. It's probably the cash, the amount of power in his money, the things that his money could buy. And what flows away from him like water when he meets Jesus? It's his money. Why? (laughs) Because the love that God has given you in the gospel redefines you. It gets right into the center of who you are and it pushes out whatever was there and says, now who I am is his. And I'm loved by him and I'm defined by him. And because I'm loved by him, because I'm defined by him, all this other stuff can just go. It can go to do whatever is best for him and his work. For the people that he loves, just like he loves me, these other people. Imagine what the next sort of application point is going to be. You have a guy like Zacchaeus who gives away all that he has. Tell me about your giving. Let's not talk about Zacchaeus right now. Let's talk about you. Tell me about your financial giving. Hope Church, St. Jude's, whoever. Tell me about your financial giving. What does it say about whether or not you've had this experience with Jesus? Let it sink in. Tell me about your service to other people in Hope Church, outside of Hope Church. Tell me about your love for and service of other people. What does it say about whether or not you've had this Zacchaeus moment with Jesus Christ? Don't don't think right now I need you to give more out of shame. I need you to ask the question of whether or not your giving shows that you've understood the love of God. If you haven't, it doesn't matter whether you give or don't give. You need to know Him. What happens most of the time is that people's giving matches their shame. I have shame before God because I know that I'm a sinner and so I'm going to give to somehow mediate that shame. And if I think I'm a big sinner, I'm trying to give a large amount, time, money, and talents. If I think I'm a small sinner, I'm probably not going to give that much. Is that what happened to Zacchaeus? Is that what happens when love, God's love, lands? No. Do the math on this Zacchaeus guy. He gives half of everything he has and then he repays fourfold everybody he's defrauded. Is he trying to match his shame with his giving? Listen, if I defraud you and I have to pay you back, it may be generous for me to give you back double. But to do it four times and then on top of that not addressing you any longer to take half of everything I have and just throw gold at poor people... Is he trying to mitigate his sin? Is he trying to pay off 
the bad things that he's done before God now that he's met Jesus his Savior? No. He has received God's love and that love has crashed down on him like a waterfall and it is pouring through him. It's filled him up so thoroughly that it's overflowing out of him into the community around him. Has that happened to you? Then you've missed Christmas. Because Emmanuel means that that love has come for you. Biblical commentator, pastor, uh, reformer back in a long time ago, John Calvin said, thus Zacchaeus is not only ready to give satisfaction if he's taken anything by fraud, but he shares even his lawful possessions with the poor, by which he shows that he's changed from a wolf, not only into a sheep, but even into a shepherd. That's what we're looking for. That's what Hope Church is going to run on. Isaiah 40 says it this way. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded by my God. I'm left out. He doesn't see me. He doesn't know me. He doesn't love. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't faint. He doesn't grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. He doesn't come and find the strong. He goes to the weak. And those that have received him, who have known him, who have met him and had his love given to them, find that they now have this strength. They can now give this way. Ephesians 4.28 says in another way. Let the thief no longer steal because you're not a thief any longer. You've been made new. You've received this love. You've got this new name. Now, labor. Do honest work with your own hands so you can give something. You can share something with anyone who's in need. Now that you have this love, you receive this love, you know this love, so you can give this love. Repentance flows from having that shame removed. Having God's love given. Has that happened to you? Because look at the result. The shame is just cured. Jesus says to Zacchaeus, verse 9, Today, imagine having Jesus speak to you directly and say, Right now, stamp it. You can have assurance. You know today salvation has come to this house. Right now. You can know it. Do you ever feel that level of assurance? There's part of me when I read that story about Jesus. He's on the cross and there's this thief on the one side and the thief on the other. It's at the end of the Gospel of Luke. And on the one side, the one thief is making fun of Jesus. He's joining in with a crowd that's making fun of Jesus. And you would have to be a pretty spiteful individual to have yourself be hanging on a cross and then, yeah, 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 forget him. He must be an idiot. And yet, he then goes even further and baits Jesus. You want to prove you're God? Why don't you get me off this cross and you down too? And then the other, the one who's being crucified on the other side says, shh, hush. We deserve what's happening to us. This one is innocent. Then he turns to Jesus and says, Remember me when you go into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say to that guy? Today you will be with me in paradise. 
And there's a part of me that thinks, what a horrible life this guy's led and he's come to this sticky end. But there's part of him that has to imagine it's all worth it to have Jesus confirm in that moment that he's there. That out of the the pit, out of the moment of walking off that edge, out of being crucified because you are a murdering thief, God catches you right then and says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. How? How? Salvation has come to this house since... Zacchaeus, he also is a son of faith, the son of the man of faith, Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. How is the shame cured? Because Jesus has come into your sin. He hasn't participated in it, but he's stepped into it and received it and the wrath from God for it so that you can be forgiven if you were God. Meaning, you were just totally pure. And you walk into this other sinful person's life and you see all of their sin and you see all of their wickedness. What would be your reaction? Your reaction would probably be like my reaction. You may be better than me. But it would be to shame them. What are you doing? This is wicked. This is awful. And you think this is good and you're doing this? Who are you? What are you? And you try to distance yourself and you put them down. You put yourself higher. You shame them. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't call wicked goodness. He's not crazy. Wickedness does exist and it is awful. He instead enters into their wickedness, takes it upon himself, so that first, uh, 2 Corinthians 5 is true. For, your, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. He became sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When I ask that question, are you an essentially clean person who's just got some dirt and we just need to wipe it off? Or are you an essentially dirty person? And the only cure is to somehow make you new? The Bible has a clear answer to that. See, the Bible said with Moses, when he's telling the people of Israel, way back in the Old Testament, God's given them the law. And they totally disregarded it after idolatry. And they totally whined and fussed at God for, for generations. And they refused to go in the promised land, so they got to wander for 40 years. And then now they've repented, and they're finally going to go into the promised land at the end of Moses' ministry. And he recounts the law to all of them. And you just see everybody going, yep, stamp it. This time, we're totally going to do it right. We would have to be crazy not to after you look at our history. And what does Moses say? But you're not going to do it. You're going to fail just like you failed over and over again. You go even back further to Noah and the ark. Do you remember that story? It's right at the very beginning of the Bible. And in this story, you have the people who have sinned so much so that God has Moses build an, uh, I'm sorry, has Noah build an ark. And it takes him like a hundred years. So it's a hundred years of Noah telling everybody the rains are going to come. God's wrath is going to come. And they laugh and they reject. And so the flood comes. It wipes out everybody except for Noah and his family. And they're floating in this ark. And you just have to know that while they're weeping for the death of humanity except for themselves, they probably have to feel pretty good about themselves too. You want to talk about an elite club? That ARC club was an elite club. They had to feel pretty fantastic that they were the ones who got it right. And yet, when the ARC 
lands, the flood goes away, and God puts a rainbow in the sky. He says, I put this rainbow in the sky, and it's a way in which I'm going to seal the covenant with you that I'm never going to flood the earth like that again. And then what does he say? To Noah, even though every intention of your heart is always evil. The Bible says about us that we have sinned against God and we will continue to. And yet, when Jesus came to be with us, he came to take that on himself. Him nailed to a cross so that he could be held still long enough for the wrath of God to be poured out for the sin of you and me. That's Emmanuel. Now, have you known that? Have you believed that? Right now, as we pray, just take a moment to self-evaluate. A lot of times we think that our belief or our non-belief is fact-based. I need more facts so that I can believe. I don't have enough facts and so I don't believe. And yet I think biblically there's way more that has to do with our outright rejection of God. We see him as something that's distant, something that's wicked. But for a moment, in the light of the cross, I want you to see his love for you. Have you received it and been changed like this? He's offering it to you right now. As we pray, just please have a moment before God where you're, you're talking to him about these things. And if this isn't you and you don't believe this, I just ask that you would continue to come around to Hope Church and let us continue to give you what God has taught us through Scripture. We're not good people, but he's, he's doing things through us. Let us continue to help you take that next step to understanding what it would be like to be fully loved like Zacchaeus. Father, right now I ask by your grace that you would take that gospel and just write it down on our hearts. Let us feel and know that love and be the kind of community that's changed in this way. Pray these things in your son's holy name.